Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Welcome to the Elite Advisor Blueprint, the podcast for world-class financial advisors. I'm Brad Johnson, VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, and it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top dot leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. In today's conversation, I get to sit down with James Clear. James's career arc has had a few twists and turns along the way, as he actually got his start as a travel photographer and has worked in over 30 different countries. Today, he focuses much of his time on writing and speaking, having launched one of the most followed blogs on the internet at jamesclear.com. He also happens to share much of his wisdom out on Twitter, and as of this recording, has over 110,000 followers. In this conversation, we cover a number of topics, including diving into his just-released book, Atomic Habits, in which he covers mindset and the concepts behind the mental models that help to predict human behavior. In my opinion, James's work is some of the most relevant for financial advisors, especially when it comes to talking about complex concepts, the many different emotions that influence decision-making, and how to build trust with prospective clients in a world where we struggle with information overload. I especially love his philosophy of believing that you do not rise to the level of your goals, rather you fall to the level of your systems. And when I survey the landscape of some of the top performing advisors we work with who've made the leap from salesperson to CEO, I don't know if there's a statement that rings more true than his statement about systems. So if you're looking to grow your business or simply transform your daily routine for the better, today's episode is a must listen. Here's just a bit of what we get into. First, James opens with a story directly from his new book, Atomic Habits, about how 1% changes can compound into incredible results and details a real-life story about how the British Olympic cycling team transformed itself after decades of failure. From there, James introduces the concepts of mental models and focuses on a few of his favorite, including inversion and margin of safety, that you as advisors out there can immediately start using in your next client or prospect meeting. Next, we get into, as I often joke with my clients, why so many financial advisors are prone to talking like a spreadsheet. James and I cover the many variables and sources of noise in finance and the mental models that can help you simplify complex concepts and clarify ideas for the average retiree. Then we get into exactly how James models human behavior to identify investment opportunities and products that he thinks will succeed. We discuss how to philosophically think about the next unicorn that's yet to be discovered. Then we geek out a bit on the future of financial technology, including how advisors can now generate leads all over the country and the friction points that James has himself encountered in financial services that technology can help eliminate in order to land new clients. Lastly, we dive into how the process of choosing a financial advisor has changed and what it is that your prospects are really looking for. Okay, before we dive into the conversation, I worked with James to set up not one, but two big gifts for all you Blueprint listeners. First off, you can download James's Transform Your Habits Guide for free right at the top of the show notes at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 52. That's 52. This free download is designed to help you form the habits to make progress in health, business, and life. And as an added bonus, hot off the presses, literally as I record this today, James's new book, Atomic Habits, just went on sale. 
And I have a box of autographed copies sitting here in my office to mail out until they're gone. His book is so new, I literally haven't even been able to read it yet. But based on this conversation, I can promise it will be one of my top reads of 2018. And by the way, I just checked out Amazon.com and Atomic Habits is already a top 10 seller for all books, literally every book on Amazon, and number one in multiple categories as well. So here's what to do next if you'd like your free autographed copy by James himself, not me, of Atomic Habits. Visit the show notes at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 52 where you'll see an offer to grab a free copy of James's book right at the top. From there, you'll get all the instructions of what to do next. But it's as simple as leaving an honest review out on iTunes for our show. You can visit the link bradleyjohnson.com forward slash iTunes for a simple redirect there to make it easy. Or on most mobile podcast players, you can scroll down on the show until you get to the review section. Once you've left a review, just drop us an email via brad at bradleyjohnson.com with your iTunes username and the best mailing address to ship you the book. And we'll drop you a copy in the mail as a thank you. That's simple. As always, all the additional show notes, books mentioned, people discussed, as well as a full transcript of the show can be found out on the show notes as well. So that's it. As always, thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with James Clear. Welcome to the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast. I have special guest James Clear with us today. Welcome to the show, James. Hey, thanks for having me. So this is a brand new first uh, for those of you that obviously watch on YouTube or listen in. James is actually at Advisors Excel headquarters, uh, getting ready to go on stage and speak with our 500 employees here and basically drop some knowledge on. So I hope so. We'll see. <laughs> so basically, where I want to dive in on this. You've had quite the interesting, if I look at your like arc so far mm-hmm. that brought you here, it's not the standard like, hey, I'm, a, I'm an author speaker. You, you took a few different turns along the way. So being the fact that you were a travel photographer, I just want to lead with this because I, I popped you up on Twitter and obviously you're pretty active on there. Sure. And there's being a guy that's taken photographs in 30 different countries, I believe. Yeah. There's this picture, I'm going to assume it's you, standing in front of like a massive glacier. Oh, yeah. So I've got to ask, why that picture? You've taken a lot of pictures over your career. Why? Why that picture on the Twitter mm. profile? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just I, I really like this from a recent trip to Alaska, and uh, it was in front of the glacier last summer. And what I love about that that particular shot is the it's called compression, but you only get it when you have a little long lens. So mm-hmm. it was this massive, like ten pound, four hundred millimeter lens. I looked ridiculous. I looked like I was a national geographic photographer or something. If you want to get looks or comments from people, just walk around with a camera that has like a four foot lens on it. But anyway, uh, set it up. My wife actually took that shot. Really? Yeah. And so I climbed up the side of the glacier and then was uh, was next to it there. And the compression that you get from it helps show the actual scale of the glacier. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to see it if you take a picture like on the iPhone or something. Mm-hmm. You get an idea of like just how much ice there is there. But uh, anyway, I thought it was cool and uh, decided to put it up. And I, I kind of rotate through like whatever recent trips I've had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sort of had like I just got back from France, and so now I'm obsessed with those pictures of these lavender fields because it's just top of mind for me and like very recent. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, I know I know you're obviously a big mindset person. It's a lot about what you write about and mm-hmm. speak about. And so I didn't even know if there was also a philosophical meaning <laughs> behind like this massive wall of ice standing in front of you. There well. wasn't in that one, but that's a valid question because that sounds exactly like the kind of thing I would do is <laughs> come up with a deeper reason for why uh, I choose some picture. But anyway, yeah. I, I will say not to go too far off topic here, but we went to Alaska 
two years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the most incredible experiences I've had in my life is standing on top of a glacier. It really feels like you're on a whole different planet. I don't know if you felt the same way. Alaska is crazy. I mean, I think, you know, obviously uh, not everybody has the opportunity to go, but if you can, I think you should go. It feels very different than all the other states uh, if you're from the U.S. And it also is just pure wilderness. I mean, you'll drive, make the drive up to like we drove from Anchorage to Denali. First of all, Denali is the size of Massachusetts. So the state park is the size of the state. And secondly, it's you're on this road and it's just 600 miles of wilderness on either side. And there's nothing there except uh, the wild, which is a very cool experience. And, you know, I was like 40 feet from a bear. Uh, you see eagles everywhere. It's just, it's very interesting, very unique. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought yeah. it was great. Well, cool. We'll, we'll dive into, I think we could talk about travel all day. My family sure back from Italy. Yeah, it was you know, quite the adventure. Yeah, so Will's going to turn into a very different <laughs> <interview>. <laughs> the, the travel podcast yeah. for financial advisors. So let's dive in because one of the things Obviously, you've got a book getting ready to drop in October, Atomic Habits. We're going to touch on pieces of that. And then being a show for financial advisors, your whole concept of mental models, mm-hmm. it, I mean, they're like drooling as soon as they hear that. Because I mean, that's basically what financial advisors do all day. It's how do I, how do I simplify the complex financial world out there for our clients? So let's lead off because I know you've got a really cool story around uh, the British cycling team. Mm-hmm. And I think it can kind of take us into the mental models and kind of how you see the world through those. Definitely. So this is a story that I lead with in the book. And it's about a team called Team Sky, uh, which is the professional cycling team in Great Britain, and the British cycling team, uh, the national team at the Olympics. And so uh, the the point or the, the setup to the story is that for many, many years, British cycling had been very mediocre. Uh, on the world stage, they had, they had won like a single gold medal back in 1908. They had never won a Tour de France. And it actually got so bad that at a certain point in the early 2000s, elite bike manufacturers would not sell their bikes to the British team because they didn't want it to hurt sales if other professional teams saw them riding their gear. And uh, anyway, so around this time, they hired this guy named Dave Brailsford. And Brailsford comes in and he has this concept that he calls the aggregation of marginal gains. And the way that he describes it is the 1% improvement in nearly everything that you do. So his thought was that if we can take all these little improvements related to cycling and then combine them, we could get a really powerful result in the, in the long run. And so they started with a bunch of things that you would expect a cycling team to do. They got slightly lighter tires and put those on the bike. They had their riders wear different uh, windsuits inside the uh, tunnels. So they, they end up switching their outdoor riders to indoor racing suits because they were lighter and more aerodynamic. <laughs> They put more ergonomic seats on the bike. They had their riders wear these biofeedback sensors so that they could see how each person was responding to training and then adjust their practice schedule and and routine appropriately. But most of that stuff are things that other professional cycling teams were doing as well. But then they did all these other things that nobody else was doing. So they they hired a surgeon and brought him in to teach the team how to wash their hands to reduce the risk of catching a cold. They painted the inside of the team truck white so that they could spot little bits of dust that would like get in the gears or mess up the performance of these like finely tuned bikes. They uh, had their riders wear electrically heated overshorts so that they would keep their muscles warm while they were uh, riding or training. And they even got to the point where they figured out the type of pillow that led to the best night's sleep for each rider and brought that on the road with them to hotels uh, when they were at you know big events or races or whatever. And so Brailsford said, all right, if we can actually do this, if we can execute on all these little 1% changes, then I think we can win a Tour de France within five years. 
he ended up being wrong. They won the Tour de France in three years. And then they repeated again the next year with a different rider who went on to win uh, two or three of his own. And then just a couple weeks ago, they won again. They won like five out of the last six or six out of the last seven Tour de France's with three different riders. And uh, at the Olympics in London in 2012, they won 60% of the gold medals available. And so this idea that 1% changes are not just like nice to have or just a little addition on top of our performance, but actually can be the key to unlocking really remarkable results. I think that's something that we often overlook because we don't understand how our habits and some daily choices compound over time. It's very hard to conceptualize that mm-hmm. and very easy to overlook just giving up one choice. You know, it's like, oh, not saving a hundred dollars this month doesn't really feel like much. And I get this nice new pair of shoes, but not doing it every month and not realizing how that compounds over 10 or 20 or 30 years. It's kind of like a, a failure in the human brain or a faulty wiring mechanism, not being able to, to see or conceptualize this compound growth. And I think that that's true, not just of financial matters and compound interest, but that all habits compound. And that's the reason that small habits are, can be such a remarkable source of growth is that they can compound into to really incredible results over the long run. So as I unpack that concept, obviously it makes beautiful sense. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing to philosophically talk about it. It's another thing to actually put something like that into action because I mean, you just, just those examples you gave, that's a lot of, that's a high attention to detail for sure. Right? Yeah. So if you were going, let's, let's go, let's apply that to financial services and let's say, Hey, we're, we're like, the, the one that I always use is kind of the pre-flight checklist, mm-hmm. right? Like one of our advisors uses this concept of anything that has a, a very bad outcome if it doesn't work well, such as an airplane takes off and doesn't land, bad outcome. Mm-hmm. But really, you, you apply that to retirement, same thing. I mean, you can't redo retirement, right? And so he, he calls it simulations, Mm-hmm. We want to simulate this. So if you were going to take a version of that and say, I'm, going to, I'm a financial advisor, I want to put that into practice in my business yeah. to better serve my clients or better outcomes for my clients. What would be like the first step or two that you might coach them to take to start to go down that path? Well, this ties in directly with the concept of mental models, which you brought up earlier. Uh, one of my favorite mental models is the concept known as inversion. And you can practice this in almost any area of life and ends up being very useful, especially with habits. And so the the point with many habits, whether this is, you know, saving money for retirement or getting in better shape or going to the gym or meditating, most of the time, we're not talking about things that are like intellectually advanced to the point that most people can't understand them. They're things that are fundamentals. And so the biggest issue is not that you are doing some like advanced level tactic that nobody else knows about. Biggest issue is are you avoiding the mistakes that most people make? So it's it's less about achieving something remarkable or incredible uh, from an output or performance standpoint, and more about avoiding the common pitfalls that most people fall into. So inversion helps you identify what those areas are. So some of the questions that you might ask, um, you know, the Stoics, ancient Stoics like Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, they used to practice inversion with relation to philosophical matters of life. They would say, "What if I were homeless?" Or imagine if I lost the ability to walk or imagine if my spouse passed away, how would I respond to those things? So you invert the situation. Most people are thinking about how can I find my ideal spouse? How can I buy a bigger house? How can I achieve some you know, remarkable result? And rather than focusing on those things, they invert the issue to think about what do I want to avoid? And then once they realize this could be my reality, how can I prepare for that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the same question can be true for financial matters. You can say, well, 
what would I do? What are the things that I would do if I wanted to have no money available for retirement? Um, and then you start listing out what those things are, right? Like what you would be spending it on, why you wouldn't be saving, where it would go each day. And uh, then you can start to prepare to avoid those things. You know, maybe you would buy a house that would be far beyond your means. It's like, well, okay, I need to make sure that I don't take on a mortgage that's too big. And that's just one simple example mm-hmm. of a way to apply that. And you can use that again. You can do the same thing for what would I want to do? What would I do if I wanted to be 65 and overweight and have two bad knees? And then you realize what those daily health habits are that would compound and lead to that result. And then you can start to prepare and change your daily life to avoid those. Dude, it's finally happened. Stoicism has been brought <laughs> on to. I, I love it. Stoicism and financial advice. Yes. We've known for a long time that they were going to meet, and now it's finally happened. Well, I'm a big fan of Ryan Holiday's The Daily Stoic. And I mean, that's, that's kind of the, I call it the gateway drug to stoicism, nice mm-hmm. little bite-sized chunks. And uh, it's interesting because as you're saying that, I'm thinking there, there's a section in there, and I don't remember. I don't remember if it was Aurelius or Epictetus or who it was, but it was basically how to deal with loss. And there was a story in there about his favorite. It was either a teacup or a vase or something like that. And what he did was he just imagined it's already broken. So this, my favorite possession, it's already fallen off the table. It's cracked beyond repair. And it was the idea of just go ahead and thinking in advance how you would deal with that. Right. And now when it does eventually happen someday or the loss of a spouse, and it obviously it forces you to be more present and appreciative of that item, whether it's a person or physical item. But as you were saying that, I'm like, that's really interesting because, you know, we're on a 12 year bull run currently, literally months away from the longest bull run in the, in the history of the U S and there's such a psychological thing with the market where, Oh, well, when the market crashed, it's always going to crash when the market's going up, it's always going to go up. And what if you applied that stoicism to the market's already crashed? How do I deal with that? Right. My how are my how actually, are my finances set up today now that the market's already crashed? It's happened. And so I never really tied those two together, but just you saying that just makes me think about that, which actually goes back to simulating, right? And and worst case scenarios. And if you're in an airplane and these the right engine goes wrong, well, they don't just throw a pilot up there in the air and say, Oh, figure it out. Right. They've literally had hours of testing. For that, so okay. Unless you have anything else to add there, I want to I want to follow up on on the concept uh, of the British cycling team. Mm-hmm. How much of that, in your opinion, is granted? It's like, hey, there's not a speck of dust on my chain here. There's, you know, we've got these heated pants that you know maybe get one percent more out of the leg muscles or whatever, keep yeah. them from fatiguing. How much of that, in your opinion, when it comes to coaching, is actual true scientific results of performance? And how much of it is psychologically that guy that's riding the bike feeling confident because these 74 things on my checklist Mm. are all checked off. I'm ready to roll. Let's go get it. Well, feeling prepared and feeling more certain is definitely going to play some kind of psychological factor, probably a a positive one. Mm -hmm. I played baseball through college and I had a great strength conditioning coach and he would, he would always say, which I thought was a great line. He was like, look, if you think it helps, it helps. And his point was, you know, some guys wanted to do a different uh, warm up routine or something before mm-hmm. we would go into the gym. And he was like, fine, you know, like if you think that this is the warm up you need to be mentally ready to do the workout, then that's fine. Go ahead and do it. And uh, there's, of course, some limit to that. Like you can't be thinking that stuff helps that actually harms you. But assuming that we're talking about generally either neutral or maybe slightly positive things, then yeah, go ahead and do the thing that gets you in the right mental uh, frame to mm-hmm. do the real work. 
Now, one thing that I do think is important, so you mentioned like, let's say that those electrically heated overshorts got them, uh, you know, 1% additional muscle, you know, improvement or whatever during their mm-hmm. typical training session. By itself, that's not a big impact. But if that gets you an extra 1% every day of training, then that can be something fairly significant over the long run. And I'm, I really love what I call, uh, and this is something I mentioned in the book as well, I kind of have a list of these one-time actions that deliver uh, repeated results mm-hmm. again and again. You know, everybody loves talking about productivity strategies, but probably the single biggest thing you could do to be more productive is make sure you get good sleep every night. Mm-hmm. So there are a variety of one-time actions you can take to get better sleep. You can test out mattresses and buy one that you sleep better on. It's just a one-time choice. You can buy blackout curtains so that you can make sure that your room is like fully dark when you go to sleep. Uh, if you live in a fairly noisy environment, you can buy earplugs and put those in or an eye mask so that you can sleep better when you're on the road. All of these are one-time choices, but they end up paying dividends for you every single night. Uh, and so maybe they only make your sleep, say, 3% better on average. But you get that 3% every night, and that can end up being a meaningful difference over the course of a year or especially a full career. So some of those things I do think are about getting yourself in the right frame of mind, uh, but also small impact, small improvements, especially those that uh, are repeated again and again, can be pretty meaningful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So when you say mental models, dealing with financial advisors, I mean, sometimes we like to talk like spreadsheets in our industry. I'm not sure if you've run into that before, but mental models are a big thing. And and I think part of it, you're talking with the performance of a cycling team and training. And obviously that's a physical output. I think in finance, uh, you're dealing with a lot of variables. You're dealing with a lot of noise, a lot of talking heads that are all saying different things or the exact opposite things. Right. And so no different than all of the 72 checklists you just went off for the cycling team. I think most retirees that our advisors are working with, they've got a lot of noise. So how do I now... I guess my question would be, of all of the mental models you've studied, if the goal is I simplify something very complex for the average Joe that might not be an expert in finance or saving for retirement income or asset management. What are some good mental models that you've seen like really break through and, and simplify some, some overly complex things? Yeah, it's uh, a good question. So I already mentioned the inversion one, which I like a lot. Margin of safety, I think, is one that applies so broadly uh, to life and so appropriately to financial issues. So the idea behind margin of safety, just very simple uh, engineering example, Let's say you build a bridge and it's tested to hold 80,000 pounds. This is an example Warren Buffett gives sometimes. You don't drive a truck across it that's holding 79,900 pounds. Instead, if you have a truck that is holding 79,000 pounds, you design the bridge to hold 120 or 160 or whatever. You give yourself a good margin of safety um, so that you're not living on the edge anytime something heavy goes across the bridge. And the same thing is true in many, many areas of life. And I noticed that the more margin of safety I give myself, uh, whether it's financially or otherwise, typically the better the results are because there's... So Daniel Kahneman, uh, he wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, Nobel Prize winner, psychologist. And people talk to him about events that are uh, unlikely, rare, difficult to predict. And he said, the lesson from these things, when you see a 29-year-old get cancer or when you hear about a freak accident and someone dies or a crazy airplane crash or something, the lesson should not be, oh, this thing might happen to me. The lesson should be life is very hard to predict. Life is surprising. 
And if life is surprising, we should have a margin of safety to protect ourselves from the things that we cannot predict. So perhaps that means having uh, more of your assets in cash because it's liquid and available and you can easily uh, use it for whatever you need. Then maybe you would typically think because you want a margin of safety there, you're going to give up a little bit of the growth and not be, say, 100% in stocks, for example, so that you have a margin of safety should you need it. This is one example of applying that. Same thing is, uh, you know, if your gas tank gets down to uh, a half of the tank, you always fill it up. So you have a margin of safety for whatever the trip is that you have to do rather than letting it run almost all the way down to zero and then filling up when you're close to empty. Same which thing with charging your phone. You know, like anytime your phone gets 50%, go ahead and plug it in and charge it rather than letting yourself get low. And then suddenly you can't make a phone call when you need to. Getting to the airport with enough time. Like there's anything involving time, energy, finances, resources of any sort, I find it better for there to be some margin of safety. You're going to buy a home, for example, uh, and you decide that you can afford up to $2,000 a month for your mortgage. Well, maybe you should get a home that's $1,500 a month so you have a margin of safety rather than going straight up to what you have calculated that you can afford. And if you do this in many different areas and you always kind of have a margin of safety, what you end up with is a very robust buffer for handling the craziness and the urgencies of life. Um, so that's one mental model that I really like. Can we hit the pause button there? Yeah, There's sure. a few things I want to ask you on that because that applies perfectly to financial services. Here's the challenge I see oftentimes. What you just shared there reminds me a bit of, I had a guy named Daniel Crosby on, a behavioral psychologist, mm-hmm. really bright guy, financial advisor, asset manager. He actually hired a financial advisor for himself because he wanted to create a margin of safety mm. based on his own psychology, right? <laughs> and so I want to ask you about that because I, oftentimes what I see, we saw, we've seen really, you know, I've been doing this 11 years and I've seen the great recession and now I've basically seen the greatest bull run back to back. So I've got really good case studies on both sides of that. And with our company working with financial advisors, we see all the psychology they deal with on a daily basis of the general retiree and how they get pulled in the fear versus greed, right? That, that kind of spectrum there. And so going back to the margin of safety, if you were going to advise a financial advisor, because conceptually it's brilliant, mm-hmm. the hard part is when you add in human psychology. And yeah. so if they were going to coach somebody that back in 0809 said, I'm going 100% to cash. I'm never getting in the stock market again. I never want to deal with this. They've got all the psychology of losing half their portfolio in a matter of less than a year, Right. But now flip fast forward to now, and you've got those same individuals that were 100% safe. They're like, the S&P did 17% last year, 20% or whatever. Our account only did 10. We need to bump up back over to higher asset allocation. We saw a lot of that happen last year where advisors almost felt helpless because they're like, I'm trying to build you a true financial plan to to run the marathon of retirement. And you're sitting here doing this whipsaw back and forth. So... Long question, but if you were going to advise financial advisors of, hey, how can I start to break this down, simplify it? And the hard part is how do you convince somebody without offending them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hey, let's see bigger picture. Let's zoom out here a little bit. What sort of, do you have mental models around that? Or here's a way you can maybe apply something on top of the margin of safety to help them better understand mm-hmm. maybe they're getting themselves in trouble. So I think people need a new way of looking at problems. You know, like if they're, if they're just looking at it as how much money have I lost in the last year or how much money have I gained in the last year, then that's a very specific time scale on which they're judging their strategy. But one of the things that makes finances very difficult, Morgan Housel, I'm not sure if you follow yeah. his writing, but Morgan wrote a really great article about this idea that 
many of the actors in any financial market operate on very different timescales. So if you're a day trader, you're operating, you don't really care what the market has or hasn't done in the last year or two years, or whatever. What you care about is this costs 7032 right now, and I can sell it for 7047 in five hours, right? Like it's it's on a much smaller time scale. The average retiree, the time scale is years, decades. So it's a, it's a very different scale. And so the decisions that people are making, it's very possible for a day trader to pump some stock up or drive it down based on all of their activity on a day-to-day basis. And then all of a sudden, the person who has a 10-year time scale is making decisions based on this other person's uh, time scale. Yes. Yep. And that can really mess up. It messes the psychology up, but then you get into this fear and greed cycle. So I think the first thing is, I don't know if we can call this a mental model, but stretching out the time scales um, and showing people what it looks like if you make decisions based on uh, a one day time scale, a one month time scale, one year, 10 years, 50 years, and why your strategy should be different for each time scale. It's not that the day trader strategy is bad given their goals, right. um, but you need to, to showcase that the goals are very different for people. And they may, because all of these people with widely varying goals are operating in the same pool, you may occasionally get waves on your side of the pool from what other people are doing in that corner, even though they have totally different uh, goals. So I think that that's one way to frame that concept. The other thing is, I think many people do not understand the core idea that losses hurt you more than gains help you. You know, if you have a dollar and it increases to a buck fifty and goes up fifty percent, you only need a thirty-three percent loss to get back down to a dollar. But most people don't get that. They're like, oh, a fifty percent gain or a thirty-three percent loss. They don't see those as equivalent. And so the most important thing is to protect whatever earnings you have accumulated. So to protect that 10% that you're getting rather than reaching for that 17%. Because as soon as you do that, then you, you know, start suffering more volatility. And of course, the, the ultimate game is to try to get some reasonable return with, without the downside, without the risk and volatility. That's, you know, if you can somehow avoid that through diversification and so on. But I think those two concepts, stretching out timescales and talking about the different goals for each one, and uh, clarifying that losses will hurt you more than gains help you. Uh, and that the primary goal of anyone who wants to have money in retirement is to protect the money that they have so that it doesn't escape them uh, before retirement. I can't make people understand those concepts, but I feel like they're two central things to, to grasp if you're going to approach that problem appropriately. I love the, the time scale. And I also love the waves in the pool because it's so true. This day trader's over here and okay, Tesla stock, well, mm-hmm. more... Elon yeah. Musk tweets yesterday, right? And, yeah, you know whatever it is, but there's waves in the pool being created over there. That's a different time horizon than me as a retiree that has a marathon run for 20, 30, maybe more years now with longevity increasing mm-hmm. every single year. You know, right? So that's interesting. One of our advisors uses this analogy of climbing Mount Everest, and he said many retirees. I mean, it's you look at they work 20, 30 years, maybe slaved away at some factory job slaving away the paycheck, you know, every two weeks, dropping money in the 401k, whatever it was. Mm. And they see retirement as I reach the peak of Mount Everest, right? Like I've made it. My nest egg's a million dollars, $5 million now. Mm. And in reality, that's only the first half of the journey. And he makes this now, I don't know how statistically accurate this is, but at one point there was a statistic that more people actually died that tried to scale Mount Everest on the way back down mm. versus the way up because they'd done all this planning to get to the top, but they hadn't actually 
haven't and reached their goal, but they haven't adequately planned how to get back down. Mm-hmm. Great analogy with retirement because like, yeah, I've got the $5 million nest egg now, but guess what? Now you've got to go to work because it's not about accumulation anymore. It's distribution. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that's interesting is you look at retirement as a marathon, but it's also kind of a sprint at the same time because you're taking distributions along the way. No longer do you have that paycheck. So yes, it has to last you this 20, 30 year time frame. But imagine you're chiseling away at it at the same time. And so that's, I think, that's this really tough thing of creating a financial plan that serves both needs, income today, the longevity of income. Oh, by the way, here's all these unknowns and this margin of safety we need to create along the way too. So yeah, I don't know if we're inspiring financial advisors out there or just saying you've got a really tough job right now. Well, but for the Everest example, just read Into Thin Air by John Coward. It's an incredible read. And many of the people that died on that trip died on the way down. I think uh, there's probably another interesting insight about human psychology there. Like often with a mountain climb like that, people have built it up so much that they make a reckless push at the 11th hour to get mm-hmm. to the top. They know that a bad storm is coming in or they know that conditions are changing, but they still push to get up there. So they make it to the top, but then they come down and they're dealing with very different conditions than what they were going up. Uh, and so they find themselves in a tricky situation um, because they weren't able to check their ego when they needed to. Yeah. I don't know what the lesson there is, but I'm sure there's... Well, I, I think it's interesting because it applies to a lot of, call it pre-retirees. They're in that last one to two year push. And I think it's it's such an emotional thing, right? It's not... They haven't mathematically calculated out like, hey, if I have a million dollars, I really only have to generate a 4% interest of return and just not lose my money and I'm good, right? Or some sort of income producing vehicle that doesn't have market risk, bonds, annuities. But many of them make these reckless decisions at the end. Like right now, you're in a really strong bull market. Say they're at 870,000 and their magical numbers a million for no other reason than it has an extra comment. Right. Yeah. And so they make this reckless push right in the last year or two. And we saw that happen in 08, 09. Unfortunately, the timing is horrible and they're a year away from retirement. And then their million dollar account went to 500,000, mm-hmm. all based on emotions, mm-hmm. not based on mathematical calculations of they probably only needed 950,000. You know, this is where that inversion concept is helpful or simulation thing. You know, my portfolio is 50% of what it is today. Right. Like just imagining that and mm-hmm. be like, all right, what does that mean? You know, I think I'm one year from retirement, but let's imagine that scenario. Uh, and maybe that checks you enough that you don't make a reckless decision uh, mm-hmm. at the wrong time. The Stoics call it a premeditation of evils. So I kind of, I mm-hmm. like that, uh, that phrase. It kind of reminds me of this, right? Like what is something evil that would happen to your portfolio? And can you premeditate on that now and then maybe change your strategy or improve your preparation because of it? Yeah, what what feels better? Nine hundred and fifty thousand safely at four percent, right? Or <laughs> or a fifty percent probability of a million or five hundred thousand. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, so there, there's a couple there's a couple mental models. Let's go. We've got to work Charlie Munger into this deal somewhere, mm. right? So obviously Warren Buffett's right hand man. I, th- I think I listened to an interview. You said he operates on over twenty different mental models that he runs important decisions through. I don't know if it's only Berkshire Hathaway or personal decisions, but he's obviously one of the most successful investors right alongside Warren Buffett historically. What what are some lessons to take from his decision-making, maybe as it applies to finances, running a business? What what are some key takeaways there? Yeah. Um, well, I actually got to see along with you know, 40,000 other people, Buffett and Munger at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting this year, which was interesting. 
And I've read a variety of what Munger's put together. I think he probably has far more mental models than just 20, but he has said that he thinks there's kind of a core few, let's call 20 or 30 or 50, something like that, uh, that carry the heavy freight in everyday life. That if you just understood those four concepts, then it would go a long way. And I actually, uh, relevant to this, I have an appendix in the book, uh, a business appendix about how to apply the concepts in Atomic Habits to business. And as part of that, I have a case study. Uh, and the case study is like nine pages that Munger put together about Coca-Cola. And if you were alive in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, and you were a potential investor in Coca-Cola, how would you identify it then, 100 years ago, as a good opportunity? And why? And what mental models would you be using to know that this is either going to go well or poorly? And in fact, what was so interesting about it, so I, I break it down and kind of add my commentary every other paragraph or so. And... Uh, What's so interesting is that this model that I've tried to put together for Atomic Habits is a model that describes human behavior and psychology. Why do we behave the way we do? Why do we build habits the way we do? And how can we use this model to help us understand not only what we're doing, but also how we can improve it? And so much of Munger's analysis is not about the financials of the business. It's about the human psychology associated with it. So... I think actually, if you want to just, if you want to skip the book and just download that appendix, I think it's at atomichabits.com slash business. But one of the things, just this is just one example from it. So Munger's um, explanation of what Coke is, is that uh, every human needs to consume water each day to survive, right? <laughs> and so he goes all the way down to like this basic human nature, human need. We need water. You know that everyone that is alive is going to be drinking water you know that the population is going to be increasing radically over the next 100 years because it has been for the previous 100 years before that. And if you simply map out where the population is going to go, you know that we're going to have billions of people, all of whom need water each day. Coca-Cola is a way to make water, drinking water, more satisfying, more enjoyable by adding sugar, flavor, uh, and flavoring. And so if you can make this basic human need a more enjoyable task, then it's very likely that you're going to have some level of motivation or desire for that product, which I thought was such an interesting way of describing what it is that that company does and how many other companies that are successful we could look at and say, what is the basic human need behind this? What is the underlying human nature, the fundamental, and how can we make that either more satisfying or easier and more convenient? And if you can do those things, then there's going to be some inherent, natural, implicit desire to have that product. So anyway, that's one. That was one breakdown I thought that was really brilliant by Munger of uh, how to apply a mental model to a particular business decision. But um, one of the other things I took away from uh, seeing him speak live at the annual meeting is that he he said an ounce of prevention is not worth a pound of cure; it's worth a ton of cure. And so he is very big on avoiding mistakes to start with. How can we just not make, you know, what we talked about earlier with inversion and identifying things that can pull you off course and doing the fundamentals. How can we make sure that we're not making a poor initial decision? It doesn't have to be the best initial decision. It would be great if it is, but how can we make sure that it's not a bad one? And his focus on that, his emphasis on avoiding early mistakes, uh, that was something that kind of stuck with me after I saw him talk. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the whole trajectory thing, right? It's like if I'm... I've heard the analogy, like if the flight's 1% off from New York to LA, it's right clear in Canada or wherever, mm-hmm. you know? And so it makes a lot of sense, obviously, as it applies to business. I want to go back to the Coca-Cola analogy, though, because that is such an interesting way. If you look at something as an investment, it's 
what's the potential future target market and what's the motivation behind that? Mm-hmm. And it's like Coca-Cola just made better tasting water. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, you've got all the obesity stuff coming out. But if you're looking at that as an investor, this stuff is so addictive that literally it makes you overweight, but people still drink it because it tastes so good and everybody has to have some sort of liquid to survive. Right. right? So if you could weigh every investment on that of like it's actually well, I mean, you even look at the cigarette industry, you know, before you know, really a lot of that came out as far as yeah, it creates cancer. But sure, you know, thirties and forties, everybody's smoking. Well, that's why Philip Morris was an incredible investment along that run. So just philosophically to throw some things out there, are there some things right now, and we're not here obviously giving investment advice, but are there some things you see on the horizon? You're like, wow, this kind of reminds me of like Coca-Cola a hundred years ago. Some mm-hmm. some things coming down the pipeline, whether it's technology or yeah, well, like that. I don't really bother with trying to figure out good individual investments that much. I just haven't spent that much of my time on it. I spend more thinking about the human nature and habits and so on. But I do think that if you see something that will make life more convenient, convenience is a huge thing. If it is convenience associated with an underlying human need, then it almost always is going to work out if we can figure out a way to make it cost effective. So for example, uh, just the other day, there's this little video going around. I think I saw it on Twitter of this machine that you take your clothes out of the laundry, uh, out of the dryer, and then you throw them into this machine and it will automatically fold the clothes for you. And of course, there are all kinds of comments about like, how lazy are we? Humanity is going to, you know, like it's everything is just falling right. apart. Like this is, we can't even fold our own clothes anymore or whatever. Uh, this is so ridiculous. Can't believe people spend money on this or whatever. My first thought was if they can figure out a way to make this machine cost effective, this for sure is going to be in our homes. We already, we used to hand wash our clothes yeah. and then let them dry and hang them up. We already put them in machines to wash them and dry them. Why would you not just put it in the washer, put it in the dryer, put it in the folder? Yeah. Um, and anything that can save us time and make uh, life more convenient is likely to be a good product as long as the price is, is uh, somewhat reasonable. And if you look at the effectiveness of many companies right now, many of these like rock star unicorn rising companies, they have looked at the process that people were previously facing. And then they found little points of friction and tried to eliminate that wherever they could. So take, uh, for example, a ride sharing service like Uber or Lyft. Previously, they would say, all right, what is the, the chain of behaviors that someone would have to go through to get a ride across town? They need to call the tax company. Then they have to wait on the curb. They got to get in the car, put their bags in. They ride across town. They uh, get there to their destination. They have some kind of payment. They you know give money or swipe a credit card. They get out of the car, so on. And so they map out every little thing that someone faces during that that behavior. And then you try to find these little points of friction. What can you get rid of there? And so they they could say something like, well, usually paying for the car at the end, uh, uh, pulling out your wallet or you know swiping your credit card, that takes a minute or two. So what if we just have the credit card preloaded in the app and you can just get out of the car? You don't have to do that. Boom. It's suddenly this behavior is slightly more frictionless and more convenient than it was before. And if you do that across like five or six different areas of the, the app or of the experience, then it, by comparison, you have this thing that seems like an obvious win. It's like, oh, suddenly, you know, this feels like a, a very convenient or frictionless experience compared to the previous one. And so many products, it really, in a lot of ways, the quest of business growth is really just trying to make previous needs more frictionless and more convenient than they were before. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how obvious it is after the fact. Mm. It's like, well, obviously you should have Uber. 
you know, hailing a taxi sucked, but why did nobody think of it before? Sure. Right. So, so let's, I love that concept. Let's apply it to financial services because what's interesting is I see technology. It's speeding this process up so quickly right now. And the analogy I make a lot is the whole, the idea of back in the day, I had to go to a travel agent to book a flight and that's annoying. Mm-hmm. Or I have to call them and I have to go down to the brick and mortar office on the corner. Well, now I go to Expedia and I book my whole trip five minutes, right? Right. Well, same thing with financial services. I think there's this, and I think it is because these are very high trust decisions. James, you're a financial advisor. I want to hand you $2 million. That's a very that's very different than booking a flight, mm-hmm. right? So as the trust factor goes up, I feel like technology lags a bit with that. That might, not, that might be 100% accurate. Yeah, that's probably the true. way I look at it. It's kind of how it works. Yeah. But it's picking up very quickly. And there's this concept where most advisors are like, they need to come to my office, sit at a table, you know, walk through my reception. And what I'm starting to see, I'm starting to see some forward thinking advisors, some podcasters out there where, hey, I've got the ability to now grab a mic like this, have a good conversation, and then boom, digitally, I just syndicated worldwide. Mm. And now what we're seeing is with good content and good advice, people are like, hey, you live in California. I live in Massachusetts. But you know what? You said some things on your podcast that I really, really valued. And I think, I think you're onto something there. Can I work with you? Mm-hmm. Back in the day, that would have been five years ago, almost unimaginable. Yeah. right? And now going back to your friction here, it's how do I make a frictionless process? And I see... That's why you see fintech just skyrocketing and all these startups and investments because... Now I take something like Zoom, like we're recording this on right now, right? and I can have a virtual meeting. And as long as that whole process on the back end is, okay, I do want to move my million dollars to you, as long as it's seamless and my technology of transferring assets and all of that, and you can see it along the way. Mm-hmm. So what, what are maybe some things? Because obviously, yeah, you may be an author and you may be kind of a thought leader, but you're no dummy. I can tell just this financial conversation right now, you know the industry. What are some... Parts of friction you've seen in your experience in financial services that are like, man, if I'm an advisor, I'm taking this out, I'm taking this out, I'm mm-hmm. fixing this. Just, just, I would love to hear your thoughts because you'd be the, the dream client sitting on the other side of the table for many of the mm-hmm. people listening in here. Well, I think, uh, first of all, from a broad level, you need to switch sides of the table and sit and think about that you're the client and then do what we just described for this like hypothetical Uber example. And map out what are all the behaviors that someone needs to perform to be a client of yours to find you. You can you can break it into different buckets. You know, mm-hmm. you could do like first it's like the initial prospecting, like how do they find out about you? What are all the things they need to do there? And then there's okay, someone has decided to become a client. What are all the things they need to do uh, then, and so on. And uh, you may find, for example, that um, just take something like paperwork, like you know that super annoying. Uh, yeah. There are a lot of things that need to be What forms can we eliminate? Like, you know, nobody, you just said a couple minutes ago, oh, it's easy to see this in retrospect that Uber is a more frictionless thing. It's hard to see it ahead of time. And the reason I think is because nobody sits down to, and maps out all these behaviors and tries to identify the points of friction ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But the people who do, they end up making it much easier. You know, I rented a car yesterday that I drive over here. And I was really surprised. It was the first time uh, that I had a fairly frictionless experience. I mean, I went up to the desk and I had my keys within probably like two and a half minutes. It was very quick. And one of the things that they did was they didn't assign me a car. They let me pick it. So they gave me the keys and they said, go to this zone in a lot and then just pick whatever car you want. And so that just eliminated that whole process of them assigning something in my system or whatever, their system. 
Um, I got in the car, I drove out, and when I got to the gate, they just scanned the car and associated with my account automatically. It was like, oh, this is the one I picked. And so it just eliminates all that decision, all the discussion too about like, what model do you want? Yeah. What size car? Like all of that is done. And uh, so that's one example of like looking at a process and making it more frictionless. Second thing is, uh, you know, some of the, the apps, like if you look at Wealthfront or Betterment or whatever, they do like the tax loss harvesting automatically. Well, if you're a client, you're like, well, this is done for me. And before I had to put all this effort in to figure out how to like harvest taxes mm-hmm. and, you know, like make those adjustments. That sounds really nice. Um, so some of that stuff can be automated with software, which is probably the best approach if you can do that. And increasingly, as time goes on, this is not, this is another thing that I think is probably important, not just for this, but broadly applies to life. This is not a one-time choice. Like the, the idea of automating the process and making it slightly easier, this is probably something you should be doing for your clients every year. You should be assessing, okay, what does the process look like now? Now what can we automate? automate and improve software is continually eating the world so to Mm -hmm. speak and taking over more and more tasks than it was before so there are going to be things next year that you'll be able to do and make more frictionless for your clients so you can't do this year yet um so that needs to be part of your annual review or something an annual tech review or or ease of doing business with us review an annual streamlining of your processes um it's really what we're talking about here so that's the first thing from a high level. The second thing that, that came to me as you were asking that question is consumers are clients in your case are far more informed now than they ever were before. So you wanted in, you know, in 1985, you wanted, if you were in Massachusetts, you did not want to work with a person in California. You wanted to work with someone locally because you didn't have access to all the information that you have now. If we don't have social proof, then we want trust. We want some kind of like a bond between someone that we feel like is um, an authority, I guess. So this is something that I talk about in the book a little bit. One of the primary drivers of any human behavior, of any habit, is what I'll call a social norm. And social norms are just things like, you know, you walk on the elevator and everybody turns around to face the front rather than back. Or uh, you sit down for an interview, which, by the way, it's really fun to break social norms too. <laughs> Speaking of that, if you pick the right one, it's really good. You know, if you go show up for an interview, you wear a suit. You know, there's no reason you have to wear a suit. You could wear gym clothes, but it would violate the social norm. And so we want to go along with the crowd. We want to go along with the herd. But when we don't have a crowd to look at, we look for other things. We look for like symbols of status, for example, mm-hmm. or authority. And so it's like, oh, you know, in 1985, I could not see what the crowd said was the best decision. I could not see that uh, putting my money in Vanguard or low-cost mutual fund was a really good choice. And so because I didn't know that, I would just go to the local financial advisor who had this status, this level of authority, and I would trust them. Yeah. So I would say that the, um, in that sense, where consumers are looking for information is shifting from the authority to the tribe. Because we have more access uh, and availability to what a wise decision is based on what millions of people are doing than we ever have before. And knowing that and understanding that, uh, I think is it can serve you in two ways. One, it serves you because you understand that more well-educated people are coming in because they have access to that information. But two, when you face someone who is not as educated on the subject as they could be, you can use that to your advantage as a selling point for why someone should follow a particular strategy. Because you can showcase what millions of people are doing or how it's serving them. And it, that can be a very powerful thing to get clients on board with what you believe is the best plan for them. Social proof can be a, uh, an ally in your corner in that case. All right, dude. I mean, this you just keep opening these doors. So I, we've got to, we're, we're going to slowly wind this down. But you bring up two things as you, as you the access to information. It's so interesting because 
as you look at the internet and obviously, you know, as it's exploded, actually, it was funny that you bring that up because I just, before we came in here, I Googled retirement income planning, 96.7 million results. So that's basically what financial advisors clients are dealing with if they go out and seek Mm. information. And so as I've seen our industry evolve, it's interesting because going back to your go to the local guy on the corner in Massachusetts back in 1985 example, well, back in those days, it reminds me of like buying a car before the internet. It was like, they said Ford was good. I walked on the Ford dealership lot. They said, this is what you're paying. And that's what I did. Yeah. Um, Now buy a car and you've got Kelly Blue Book. You're like, here's all the consumer ratings. By the way, here's the lot price. Here's the actual wholesale price that they have. When I bought mine, I submitted to, I got quotes from 10 different dealerships and just have them all compete because that's like, that's exactly what I did. That was literally impossible in 1985. But yeah, I was picking dealerships that weren't even, they were like four hours away from me. I was able to use their price to get the local one to come down. That's exactly, well, Elon Musk messed me up there. But, Prior, that's exactly what I did. It's like, here's the model. Here's all of you know the options I want. Fight over it, sure. Basically, and hey, I'm going to do business with whoever treats me the fairest. But your point is true. It's a very different world now. We make those decisions. And so, like, if you use that car buying analogy, I, I look at the flood of advisors that, from a BD standpoint, they've really gone independent. They've gone RIA, you know, basically fee based and fiduciary and holistic. And the what the analogy I make is, it's, it's like they're what I believe consumers want. And I could be off base here, but they want to know the guy I'm talking with. Number one, he's going to be transparent and he's going to be real with me. But I also want to make sure if there's this financial toolbox, there's a really big toolbox sitting in front of him. Mm. I want to make sure he has access to every single financial tool under the sun because I don't want to deal with, we won't name any names, but here's this captive group. They just sell this certain mutual fund because they make the highest revenue on it. And Mm. it's what serves their company at Mm. the highest level, right? So I've seen this, this shift. So my question is, as a financial advisor, how do you, how do you navigate that? And I'm just kind of throwing a curveball random question at you mm-hmm. here. But how do you, in a tactful way, with someone like yourself that's successful, say you walk in and say, hey, I have a million bucks. I want to save for retirement. I want to make sure I'm set. What are some tips you might give somebody that now that they have access to every single piece of knowledge, Number one, don't let it overwhelm you. But number two, here's how as a financial advisor in today's world, you can trust me and I'm going to give you transparent advice. I'm going to guide you through this. Like ideas, concepts on how, like if you were building a financial advisory business, how you'd start to navigate that complicated world. So I'll tell a story and tie it back in. A friend of mine was giving a presentation at a conference and his challenge was, he said, why, you know, like, honestly, why would someone come to this presentation? They can watch Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Brene Brown and a bunch of other amazing people give talks on YouTube. If you want to just watch a good talk, all the best ones in the world are available like three clicks away. Yeah. So why would you come to this presentation? And he did a really smart thing, which is he had the audience, he pulled up a, a Google uh, form and had the audience pull up their phones and fill it out live there. So they were, this particular presentation was about uh, business ideas or like ways to, to build a startup. And so he had people submitting ideas during the presentation. And then once they were all done, uh, he emailed that list out to everybody who was there. Now, suddenly you have a reason to be at this live presentation. You cannot get that information, that crowd, those crowdsource ideas anywhere except right there. And I think that was a brilliant example of taking something that looked like it was a weakness to 
fact that we have more information available than ever before, that you can get access to all the best talks immediately, and turned it into a strength by uh, using the technology uh, for him rather than against them. I think that financial advisors in this particular example, and again, I'm not one, but I think that um, this is something that could be a similar strategy could be applied. All right. So you search for retirement planning, you see 96 million results now. There's more information than ever before uh, and more good information than ever before. And so it seems like from the outside, this is a, a negative. This is a weakness for our industry. Like why would someone come to me anymore if they can get it on their own? But in fact, the flip side of that is now suddenly there's information overwhelm. There are 96 million results. How do I, as an individual, know what the right one is? And so if you can figure out a way to frame yourself as a signal in the noise, as someone who can uh, sift through all of these things, because I'm working day to day uh, on these topics, and I'm the one that's able to deliver the information to you that is um, valid and useful, then you start to use that what looked like a disadvantage and turn it into a strength. Now, you have to be really good at the same time. I think you have to understand that People probably have access to all this information. Like for me, when I know the stats, when I know that most of the alpha that is provided by a good investor is eaten up by their fees, and I'm just as well off just dumping in Vanguard and not even thinking about it, uh, then you have to know that cons- like many consumers are coming to the table knowing those things mm-hmm. uh, so that when you frame yourself as signal, you're saying stuff that is accurate and mm-hmm. that uh, you're not trying to like get something past somebody. But I do think that looking for ways to utilize that to your advantage, um, it's kind of like judo. You know, I mean, you have this 800-pound gorilla coming at you. How can you step to the side and use its weight against it rather than uh, letting it just overpower you? It reminds me, so going back to the travel agent analogy, I just used a travel agent on my trip to Italy. I'm like, why didn't I just book it myself? Mm. Going back to convenience that you mentioned. But I think it applies a lot in financial services. I think if... If your strategic angle is, I'm going to be the lowest cost option in town, good luck mm. because you're battling against a computer. Right. Yeah. Right. The robot will win. Right. Yeah. And so, and guess what? They don't need sleep and you do. But if I look at the other angle, well, as the net worth climbs and as James, you get closer to retirement and probably have a few more millions stocked away. Well, now it's not just how do I manage assets and generate growth for a low cost? It's now how do I also navigate tax issues and how those interplay with your account? And oh, by the way, maybe you've got some kids you want to leave some things behind you. So estate planning. Right. And so I find as the problem gets more complex, where I see most people in our industry going is technology, like you talked about before, basically taking the friction away from the process of working with me. But number two, how do I make sure I'm climbing that ladder of more complicated problems to solve? Mm. Because that's a nice moat around i love things too like if you can guarantee me money so for example if you can say um we'll look at your insurance for you and your business and we'll make sure that you are properly protected but you're not overinsured you know let's yeah. say that i'm 800 a year overinsured right now well great i'd like to have that back if i don't read right. it things like that where that that's guaranteed that's a guaranteed return right i'm yeah. just like cutting out 800 of expenses and there are all sorts of things like that whether it's taxes or insurance or so on that if you can find those wins for your clients, then that's another way to beat this wide access to information, which is specific advice for the individual yeah. and guaranteed returns like that can be. Uh, that sounds compelling to me as a, as a potential client. And, and what's interesting, like, hey, I can get you 10% and maybe I can get you 12 because I've got this better asset manager. Well, what if I just save you 25% on a tax strategy? Mm. Isn't that how different, how different is that than making you 25% if I right. just save you 20? So I don't care where the dollars come from. Yeah. They just, yeah. yeah. Okay. Time for one, maybe two philosophical questions. That's it. Okay, cool. 
I want to ask you this one. This is like my go-to favorite. If you could look back 25 years from today and say, man, that was really absurd. We used to do that. Or framed another way, like, can you believe we used to do that back in the day, 25 years ago? What comes to mind? Well, the first thing I think of is driving cars. There's a great uh, like joke that I love about it where you know, you're talking to your grandkids 25 years from now. And they say, wait, you all used to drive cars? Oh, yeah. And nobody died? Oh, no, millions of people died. <laughs> it's like, it's, there are more people who died in car accidents last year than guns. Uh, now, gun control is a much bigger political issue right now mm-hmm. than car control, if we wanted to call it that. Uh, but we do this all day long. We hurdle around in these metal death traps and don't realize the risk that we're taking and the potential. Because we do it so much, we all just think it's normal. Yeah. Um, the other thing is cars take up a ton of space. Um, you know, there's mean, so much space for parking. They take up, they make the streets wider. Uh, they make cities more inaccessible. Blocks have to be longer. Streets have to be wider to park them. Buildings further apart. It's harder to get to places. I don't know that our cities will radically transform into walkable communities in the U.S. because we have such a huge infrastructure built around cars right now. We I mean, can't just pluck the roads up and get rid of them. But I do wonder if in 25 or 50 years, we'll look back and, and think that that was, it was crazy to do it the way that we did. I heard a story about elevators and how long it took over 50 years for elevators to be adopted. Uh, instead really? of like climbing eight flights of stairs, people were just weirded out by them. Huh. And I wonder if there's going to be a similar uptake for self-driving cars. You know, you talk to people or you hear Elon say stuff like, oh, you know, they'll be here within five years or whatever, 10 years. But uh, I think it'll probably be a slower transition than that. There are a lot of reasons why. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that's, that's the first one that came to mind. It's cool. I, I have a Tesla. I have autopilot mm. and it's, it's interesting because people are like, wait, do you have one of those self-driving cars? I'm like, well, it's not technically self-driving. I still trust. I trust it enough to have my hand on the wheel at all times. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it is such an interesting thing because statistically, I, I almost feel a bit bad for Elon Musk because he's blazing a new trail. And if you look just mathematically straight statistics, they've, they're tracking all of the self-driving miles versus all of the you know, human driven miles. Mm. Statistically, it's all, I forget the exact percentage, but multiple times safer when autopilot's engaged. Oh, I'm sure. I and mean, so much human error is involved. Yeah. It's going to be hard for us to, uh, again, another difficult thing for the human mind to conceptualize because we're not in control. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not used to riding in a car the way we ride in a plane. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that'll be, I think that's going to take a while to get over. And that, I mean, I think there have already been a few deaths from self driving yeah. cars. There will be more probably as we yeah. work through the system. But if it is, even if it's 5% lower than what the human error rate is, and it's probably going to be far more than that, probably like 90 plus percent lower. I'm going to put it in the show notes because we're going to have to statistically. But I mean, even if it's 5% fewer deaths from car accidents, that has to be worth it. And so I, you know, I, I'm I'm all on board for it. I think anything that uh, protects more people and increases the the average lifespan is is going to be net positive. Yeah, for sure. All right, last question. So you can take the stage prepared today. If you really narrowed down for the audience, what is the one thing that's led to, sh- to your success to this point? Before you were a New York Times bestselling author, because I know you will be <laughs> shortly. But <laughs> but the one thing that's led to your success to this point, what would it be? Um, well, the thing that changed the arc of my business and trajectory um, of my work was writing a new article every Monday and Thursday. Uh, so we call that a habit. We call it consistency. Um, call it what we want. But that was that was the thing that changed it. So I did that every week for three years and went from zero readers to over a million a month and hundreds of thousands on the newsletter and so on. 
And that, uh, that habit led to the business growth. But from a broader perspective, the thing that I would say uh, is working out. I don't think that I would be an entrepreneur if I didn't go to the gym four or five days a week. I wouldn't be able to handle the psychological roller coaster ride that it requires. And there are many days where I've had what feels like a lost day, an unproductive day. I'm not getting anything done, but at least I got a good workout in. And that makes it feel like it wasn't lost. It's also the only time, you know, you know, that feeling where you get going in the workout and then um, you start pushing yourself so much that you, for a while, everybody walks in the gym, they're kind of like worried about how they look, they want to make sure that like things are going well. But then you're suffering so much that you don't even care about any of that. You're literally just trying to get through the next 60 seconds. Um, you're just trying to breathe. Mm-hmm. And there's something therapeutic about getting to that point, about letting go of all the worries about status and social approval mm-hmm. and internal judgment and self-criticism. You can't have the voice in your head uh, talking that loudly if your breath is overpowering it, if you're just trying to get through it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about pushing yourself physically that relieves you and refreshes you mentally and also strengthens you mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't know that you can reach whatever your particular peak mental toughness is if you don't also push yourself physically. You can get to some very powerful places just in your mind by working hard or doing meditation or so on. But it, I don't know that it will ever be as much as it could be if you also push yourself um, in a physical way. Do you start your day with the workout or end your day with the workout? I end it. Um, I've done it both ways. Uh, I tend to find that my lifts are better if I work out in the evening or early evening. For me, it's usually sometime between like four and seven, somewhere mm-hmm. in that range. But yeah, it's just, that's just the pattern. Yeah. I, I, I've got a workout buddy at the house and my, like my, my good, we do it in the mornings mm-hmm. and uh my go-to joke is like you get done with your work we just accomplished 99.9 percent than most of america will today just by doing that mm-hmm. and so Feels I, good to start yeah, I, that way. I relate it back to kind of the military concept of start your day by making the bed because if all else goes to hell the rest of the day you had a small victory to start yeah. your day with. And that's, that's how I kind of, that's how workouts fit into my life. Mm-hmm. It's like, Hey, really bad day at the office. Well, at least I got this done. Right. So, and the longer you wait, the more other people's agenda items start creeping into your day and mm-hmm. you respond to theirs rather than operating on your own agenda. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, I, I think it's important to get something productive or important done very quickly. Yeah. Even if it's just making your bed for sure. One quick question. I'll let you run. So for three years, you wrote an article every Monday and Thursday. What year did you start that? November 12th, 2012 was the first article. November 12th. Okay. So, and what were you doing at that time? Were you full-time photographer or what was your... No, uh, I've been... So, you know, I'm an author now. uh, And that's usually the the quickest way to describe what I do. But I think I identify first and foremost as an entrepreneur. So I had started a couple other businesses for like the two years before that. And now I refer to that period of time as the period where I incubated my skill set. But I, uh, you know, like many people, when I started, I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, yeah. I tried out a bunch of different ideas, gradually learned how to build a website and build a product and grow an email list and all that. Mm-hmm. So when I started jamesclear.com, I at least knew what I was doing. I started from zero again, but all the pieces were in the right place. I think that's why, you know, over that time span uh, from November 2012 to November 2014, um, I went from zero to 100,000 email subscribers, which was one of the fastest growing blogs um, mm-hmm. at that time. And I think that a reason I was able to do that is because of the two years that came before where I learned a lot of those skills and was kind of prepared for it. What led you, what was the motivation? Because that's a serious commitment. What was like November 12, 2012, I'm doing this Monday, Thursday. 
I don't think there's anything special about that pace or those days in particular. I do think that there's something in any person who's creating something, whether it's podcasts or articles or art, there is some period early in your career where I think you should just have a consistent frequency because you need to learn what your voice is. You need to figure out there are a lot of kinks in the process of like, you know, how does this all work? And how do I produce something? What does my system look like? All of that can only be figured out if you hold yourself to a, a standard of publishing. And so for that reason, I said, all right, I'm going to do twice a week because I feel like that's the pace that I can make two quality articles at. I felt like if I went beyond that, it wouldn't be high quality enough Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was some implicit quality bar there, but I always, for that period of time, let the schedule drive my work. If it it didn't matter how long or how short it was, how good or how bad it was, how I felt about it, something was getting published on Monday and Thursday. If I could only write one good paragraph, then that's what the article was. And I think that it was important to do that because I learned a lot about uh, producing. I also learned that I'm a terrible judge of my own work. Sometimes you think you come up with a good idea and it doesn't go over that well. And sometimes one of my most popular articles I wrote in the passenger seat of a car driving through West Virginia because I had to get it out that day. Mm-hmm. And it went over really well. And I didn't know that that idea was you know as useful as it was or that people would resonate with it. But I got it out there because I had to stick to the schedule. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's something really valuable about that, I think, especially early on in a, in a creator's career. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting when I started the podcast, straight experiment more so I could put content out on my client's time versus hop on this 10 a.m. webcast, right? Right. But I think what you said about sometimes your worst work in your own mind, you've got to be really careful as a creator, listening to the own voices in your head mm. goes back to finding your voice. Because I've had interviews, I'm like, man, I just bombed that. Like, why did I ask that stupid question? Why did I stutter mm. along there? And then next thing you know, like you get emails and oh i love that interview you know and so i think that is something you gotta be really careful about as a creator is just don't always listen to your own voice in your head let let the work validate itself once you put it out there yeah there's a great quote about something like um focus on making good art putting it out there and then while everyone is deciding whether it's good or bad just make more art and so i kind of like that like your job is not to judge the work your job is to produce it so Mm -hmm. Just focus on seeing the schedule. That sounds like a quote from the war. Is it the art? War, war of art? Uh, the war Pressfield? of art. Pressfield? Pressfield, yeah. Because yeah. I'm like, man, that's, that's, like, that's hitting home. I've heard that somewhere before. Yeah, yeah. great book. Um, okay. One last question. <laughs> just sorry, dude. You just you got me going here. <laughs> just because we've been taking our clients down this path and nobody in financial services is doing it. Or very few, I should say. What's been the power that you've seen now that you have this massive list of people that follow you? Like, what has that done for your business? Because I think so many financial advisors, they've got these massive database of people that have come to their live events in the past, referrals that maybe didn't work out. They've got this massive untapped resource. You're tapping it in your Mm -hmm. business. What's been the most powerful thing about having a massive list? Well, I I don't know. Like, uh, on one hand, I don't really think about my audience that way. Like, I've always said this to my readers. I... I don't really consider myself like an expert. I, I'm more of an experimenter. I'm someone that's going through it with you. Uh, I'm just trying, trying ideas and trying to see what works and then sharing what I learned along the way. Like, I don't think I have it all figured out. And so in that way, I, in a lot of, I really think my, my audience, if you want to call that my readers are my peers. In that yeah. sense, like we're all just trying it. Now having access to a large email, like my email list is over 400,000 people now. So having access to that, it does, I mean, it moves the needle from a business standpoint. Um, just yesterday, for example, I sent out an email about the book and immediately it's in top 100 on Amazon. It's like number 44 yesterday, uh, just from one email. I didn't even really push it. I just mentioned it. So in that sense, yeah, it can make a big difference. 
but I still think it's important to to consider myself on the same level as them. Mm-hmm. We're all just like trying ideas and I'm just sharing what's working publicly and hopefully it's useful. Mm-hmm. So what I take from that is you just, you have a megaphone that happens to be bigger than the average Joe where, mm-hmm. because most people, they send an email, well, here's the, their mom and dad just bought a copy of their book and maybe a cousin, right? So, well, James, thank you so much, man. Yeah. It's thank been you. a pleasure. I appreciate um, it. That was great. Good luck on the book. I have no doubt. There's going to be a lot of people that brings value to. So I appreciate the time today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. For access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from our show's guests, visit bradleyjohnson.com. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners. It really does help. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. The information and opinions contained herein are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.